Uh, this morning, our theme is generous. Be generous. Fourth week of the art of neighboring, two more weeks, and then we get into Daniel for the fall. That's going to be a lot of fun. It's been a lot of time preparing already for it. Uh, that's going to be a lot of fun to do this fall, but we have two more weeks in the art of neighboring. Week four is be generous. And as you think about what it means to be generous, I want to maybe draw our attention to a story many of us are familiar with, uh, the Christmas Carol. Everyone at some point has seen or heard or read about Ebenezer Scrooge. And some of you know that Charles Dickens wrote this like in the 1830s, and and obviously it did much better than he expected that it would do. It's never been out of print since he uh, published it. I think it was published on like the 19th of December of that year, and all the first edition copies were sold out by Christmas Eve. But the story starts in London on Christmas Eve with Ebenezer Scrooge. We're introduced to him, and it takes all of 30 seconds to realize he is not a guy that we want to be like. And so it's Christmas Eve, and he's shown to be wealthy and miserly, reluctant to even give his employee, Bob Cratchit, the day off on Christmas to be with his family. Reluctantly, he does so. He goes home, he goes to sleep, and he's visited by three ghosts, right? The ghosts of Christmas past, the ghosts of Christmas present, and the ghosts of Christmas future. And the ghost of Christmas past comes to Ebenezer Scrooge and takes him back and shows him incredible memories when he was young, when he was more innocent, when there was more joy in his heart, and he remembers what once was. And then that ghost takes him and shows him his broken marriage and his now ex-wife happily married and their family and the joy that they have. And so he sees what could have been his. He sees what once was and was lost. The ghost of Christmas present comes and takes him around town and sees joy as people are shopping in the streets and takes him into homes, the home of his employee, Bob Cratchit. And that's where we meet the famous character, Tiny Tim. And the ghost tells Scrooge that Tiny Tim is seriously ill and will die if he doesn't get the care that he needs. Fast forward, the ghost of Christmas future. The ghost takes Scrooge to a funeral. It's his funeral. And almost nobody's there, and the people are there don't want to be there. Their only reason they're there is because lunch was promised after the service. The caretaker steals from Scrooge whatever he had in his pockets when he passed away. And then the ghost takes him to an unkept tombstone. Neglected, not cared for, weedy, no flowers. And Scrooge realizes that he has touched nobody. Nobody is impacted by his passing other than a family that owed him money who is now celebrating because they're off the hook. And so he wakes up Christmas morning and he sets out to undo all the things that he's done. He sets out to be a more kind and more generous human being. And so I want to start with Ebenezer Scrooge because I think when we talk about money and we talk about generosity as part of this idea of building bridges from our lives to take the gospel to people who have not heard about Jesus in our community or who have not heard about Jesus across the globe through something like the Great Commission Fund, we have an Ebenezer Scrooge posture about us. We have an Ebenezer Scrooge selfishness about the way that we view our time, our resources, our money, our possessions, anything that kind of falls into that category of tools, resources, things that we cling to as ours. We have an Ebenezer Scrooge posture that makes us miserly, uh, reluctant, compulsory givers, right? Because we, we save to get more. We don't save to give more. And last, we have this miserly Ebenezer Scrooge posture 
we see that just like him, our desires mean far more to us. What we want means far more to us than the needs of those around us. Again, no one wants to be Scrooge. From the moment the movie, from the moment the book starts, we see that the attractiveness maybe of his riches is not worth the ugliness that is in his heart, the ugliness relationally that he has with others, the ugliness of his own peace and joy and contentment, the attractiveness of his wealth is nothing compared to the ugliness that we see in his heart. I want us to see this morning that as we respond to the gospel, this overwhelming effort from our Father to be generous towards us, it compels us to be generous to others too. And it gives us something to take and to give generously. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read the story of Zacchaeus from Luke chapter 17. We're going to read the first 10, 11 verses of this story together. And I want you to see the generosity of Jesus, the generosity of our Savior applied to the life of Zacchaeus and the immediate and generous response of his heart that shows that there's an authentic, an honest, a true, a meaningful, a deep transformation that has taken place in his life. Uh, Luke chapter 19, sorry. I'll keep you guessing and just tell you different chapters. Uh, Luke 19, 1 through 10 says this. He, being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Some of you are singing the song in your head. I'm not going to sing that song to you, but there is one. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Verse 7, and when he saw it, they all grumbled. Everyone around Jesus is grumbling, saying he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. We could spend a month on that. Verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the, the half of my goods I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus comes into town. He's been in Jericho. We're going to catch back up on some things that had just happened that Luke records that were also in Jericho. Jesus is traveling. There's an entourage. The religious leaders are around, bystanders, people wanting to see miracles, people wanting to hear his teaching, people who have heard rumors of the things that he's done and want to see the spectacle that is Jesus and his followers. He comes into town. He's on his way, and he sees Zacchaeus, little guy climbing up in the tree, and it says Zacchaeus was wealthy, says that he was small in stature, and he said that he was curious. He wanted to know who Jesus was. And rather than just avoid Zacchaeus and go to a more prominent person's house, rather than look at Zacchaeus and condemn him as a tax collector, as a wretched human being, as someone who's taken advantage of friends, taken advantage of neighbors, and living with indulgent excess... Jesus goes right up to him 
looks him in the eye and says, Zacchaeus, let's go have lunch. Come down. Let's go have lunch. I'm coming to your house. Jesus spends time with Zacchaeus and declares after talking with Zacchaeus that truly salvation has come to this house. And so the first thing that we see in this text is that nothing is impossible with God. No person is too far gone when Jesus is the healer, when Jesus is the physician. There is no such thing as too far gone. If we were to backtrack and we were to read through Luke 18, you'd see this conversation that Jesus has where he says it is so hard for anyone with wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus' disciples in Luke 18 say, how can anyone be saved? And Jesus says, you're right. Ah, That's tough. He says, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And, And then after that scene, Jesus goes and he heals a beggar. And this story is sort of repeated in the sense that Jesus comes to a man ignored by society, condemned by society, a man that everyone around him would have said, don't pay attention, ignore him, disregard him. He's not significant. He doesn't mean anything. And by the way, he's a beggar. By the way, he's probably got some horrible sin. By the way, he's probably too far gone, too far broken. Jesus heals him and says, your faith has healed you. Not just stand up, not just have your eyes open. He says, your faith has healed you. See, Jesus sees beyond the cover of the book into the heart with the beggar. Jesus sees beyond the cover of the book into the heart of Zacchaeus. He says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. You've got to understand that Jesus going to lunch with Zacchaeus is just way outside the bounds of what would have been normal, way outside the bounds of what would have been expected. And you see that when you hear and read of the grumbling of those people with Jesus. And so it causes us to ask the question, Jesus ran to those who were far from him. Jesus pursued those with extraordinary baggage. Jesus chooses to have lunch with someone who has taken advantage of, abused, his position of power in the community, like a predator, has taken advantage of his friends and his neighbors. Someone who has used his influence to take money from family and friends. It's awful. And Jesus says, I am going to your house today. And so I'd ask a question. It seems like sometimes Christians, people that would say, I follow Christ, run from baggage or maybe run from people that the world would say are too far gone. There's no hope. Some of you uh, like to restore cars. Some of you uh, enjoy looking at cars. I can't restore anything, but I do love getting online and looking for good deals with cars. I'm never going to buy one. We don't need one. Ours work just fine, but it's like a little mental vacation, and it's kind of interesting to get on Craigslist and look for cars, and every once in a while, I'll find one that looks like a great deal. It's a shiny car with a really low price tag, and when I see that, the first thing I'm looking for is two words, salvage title. Because salvage title means that at some point in this car's history, the insurance company has been invited to take a look at it, and the insurance company has said that the car is ruined beyond repair, beyond what its value would be to repair it. It's too far gone. 
Sometimes as Christians, we look at people. Sometimes as Christians, we look at people. Like I look at those salvaged titled cars and say, it's too far gone. It is beyond repair. It's broken. It's not good for anything. And Jesus goes to his house. Doesn't run from him. Jesus goes to his house. Jesus doesn't come in the front door and then read him the list of all of his transgressions. We don't get that, do we? Jesus doesn't come in and say, all right, sit down. We've got to have a conversation. We see the generosity. We see the mercy. We see the kindness of our Father played out through Jesus as he goes in to Zacchaeus' house and he declares that salvation has come to this house. He says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I ask you this morning, is there anybody that you've given up on? Family members? Friends? Is there a people group that you've given up on? You say, everything that this people group says, everything that they do, I wish they were gone. I wish they were not here. The world would be better without them. Is there a people group? Is there a person that you've given up on and said they're too far gone? Because when we look at people in the flesh, when we look at people with our own eyes, we see obstacles. When we look at people as Jesus sees them, we see opportunity. Right? Nobody is too far gone if Jesus is the master physician. No one is too far gone if Jesus is the master healer. If I'm the healer, we're all toast. If anyone here is the healer, we're all toast. Nobody is too far gone if Jesus is the master physician. He says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. The second thing we see from Nicodemus is that Zacchaeus God's generosity towards us compels us to be generous towards others. Do you see his immediate response to Jesus? They come, Jesus enters into his home, they have lunch, they probably had the best food and the best wine and a huge table, a huge spread. He was a wealthy man. The best that was available in Jericho was probably at that table and probably dozens and dozens of people and then even more looking in and looking on from around, listening to what Jesus would say, listening to their conversation and Luke who is a master detailist just gives us a short snippet of what Zacchaeus says in verse 8 it says and Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord behold Lord the half of my goods I will give to the poor and if I have defrauded anyone of anything I will restore it four times we see that he responds to Jesus generosity with contrition. We see that he responds to Jesus' generosity with a desire to make things right. He responds to Jesus' generosity with generosity of his own. To restore fourfold is far and away beyond what would have been expected of someone trying to make things right. It's over the top. And then last... He responds to Jesus' generosity with an authentic conversion, an authentic transformation. And how do we know this? We see a man who has chosen money over his friends, money over his family, his own desire to live with excess and indulgence over the needs in his community, the needs of his neighbors, the needs of people that he grew up with, the needs of people that he would have had some care for, some emotional tie to, some relationship with. And those things, Things that he has prioritized above people, those things that he has prioritized above his own morality and integrity 
now become tools for his father to glorify God. And so these things that have meant so much to him have been yielded to the use of the Lord to care for his community and to bless the Savior for the glory of God. You see, generosity isn't a, isn't a checkbox on a spiritual report card. Generosity is what happens when we're overwhelmed with God's generosity to us. It's not just a checkbox on a card where we say, look, I had a really good day. I was generous with someone. I was kind of patient uh, this morning at work. I said a few nice things. Generosity isn't a checkbox on some sort of spiritual report card. It's what happens when we're overwhelmed by the generosity of our Father towards us. It compels us to be generous to others. We've got to see that every act of generosity is a deliberate move to reject using the things that the Lord has given to us for our own self-serving purposes. Every act of generosity is a deliberate act, a deliberate move to reject using what God has given to us for our own selfish purposes. Some of you have had family members, friends, some of you yourself have had to have radiation or chemo uh, for cancer, right? And the cancer, the radiation and the chemo goes in and it targets the cancer and it, to kill the cancer. One of the interesting things about generosity, in the same way that the chemo targets the cancer, uh, generosity targets our selfishness. Generosity targets our desire to make much of ourselves. Generosity targets our ego. Generosity targets uh, the sin in our heart, the lack of trust, because every act of generosity says, Lord, what I have is a gift from you. What I have is to be used for you. So every act of generosity is a deliberate act to reject using what the Lord has given to us and to use it for his purposes. It is a byproduct of spiritual maturity, but it is also a tool that roots out immaturity every time we are generous. We know that we are not hardwired to be generous. Maybe one person is in here. Not very many are hardwired to be generous, right? We are hardwired to be selfish, and we are hardwired to want to be in charge and do what we want, when we want, where we want, with whatever we have. Zach this week asked me, Dad, who's the real boss, you or Mom? Over dinner, just out of nowhere, who's the real boss? Let's cut straight to the only thing that matters. Who's the real boss, you or Mom? It's mildly insulting that he had to ask. No, that's not true. I said, we're a team, we're a partner, we do everything together. He didn't like the answer. Um, Who's the boss? Because we're hardwired to have some sort of hierarchical structure and we're hardwired to want to be at the top of whatever the pyramid is, the top of we want to be the boss. We're hardwired to not only want to be in charge and do things our way when we want and how we want and where we want with what we want. We're hardwired to think of ourselves. Our family loves to watch movies. I have never heard one of my kids ask the other one, what would you like to watch? Never once has that happened. I've heard, I want, I want, I want. I have never heard one of them say to the other, you know, I chose yesterday. What would you like to want to watch? (laughs) Some of you have had that happen. You are better parents than we are. But we're hardwired to be selfish. And so every act of generosity, just 
burrows in, bores in to that selfishness, bores in to that desire to want to be in charge, bores in to that desire to want to use what we have to make us happier, to get more, to do more of whatever it is that we want to do. Every act of generosity. The Bible says a whole lot about money, and quite honestly, it says a whole lot about money, but also nothing about money, because every time we, we talk about money, we're really talking about our hearts, right? Some of you are familiar with the passage in Matthew where Jesus says you, you can't serve God and money, right? You can only serve one. And so every time we see money, we're tempted to think, ah, the Bible's trying to get my money. Uh, the pastor's trying to get my money. The church is trying to get my money. Every time you see money, you've got to think what we're after what the text is talking about is your heart and saying if you're attentive to your heart you'll discover that your money what you do with it how you value you how you value it reveals what's in your heart and that's what god's after a couple of verses that speak to this idea of generosity if you have your bibles acts 246 is one i want to turn to because we recently finished the book of acts Uh, but also because this is shortly after the Holy Spirit comes, as Jesus said he would, and just blows everything up there in Jerusalem. And so you have this rough, raw thing called the church that is just gathering momentum, clustering together, and then spreading out, taking over, transforming hearts, transforming lives, thousands joining. Acts 2.46 says this about those people that had been empowered, called by the Spirit, transformed, and are now together living it out. And it says in verse 46, And day by day they were attending the temple together, they were breaking bread in their homes, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts. With glad and generous hearts. They were grateful and they were givers. They were grateful and they were givers. And we see many examples of this throughout the book of Acts, that they are glad, that they are grateful, and they are generous with what they have. Because when I realize that I'm no longer my own, I'm his, the things that I think are mine are also no longer mine, they're also his. When we follow Jesus, when we yield our whole lives to him, he starts to change our whole lives. When we yield every part, he starts to change every part. And so if you don't see this sort of spirit-infused generosity as you think about your resources, as you think about your money, as you think about your time, that's cause for concern. It might cause us to ask the question, am I yielding all of myself to the Lord? Proverbs 19.19 speaks to generosity also. Uh, Acts 2.46 basically says it marked the early church. And so if it doesn't mark us, it seems like it's us who have moved, not the early church. Uh, The second point, generosity leads to blessing. Proverbs 19.19 speaks to this. Yeah, 19.17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor, whoever, uh, whoever is generous to the poor, lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Right? This is a principle. Whoever is generous to the poor, it's as if he lends to the Lord, and it is the Lord who intends to repay. It's kind of like having the Lord uh, put you on his Chase checking account. It's, it's kind of like that. Um, some of you have young kids, and, and you know about the way that businesses market to young children. And so I think it was a study in 2006, 
17 that said approximately $17 billion go towards marketing towards 2 to 11-year-olds. And over the course of a normal year, and this is like 10 years ago, which means it's quadrupled since then, um, but in that same year, another study came out that showed kids 2 to 11 uh, see a, an average of 25,000 advertisements just on the TV alone over the course of any given year. And so you might say, well, why so much money? Why so many ads? Uh, it's because kids have parents. Kids don't have jobs. They don't have any money. Kids have parents, and parents have money. Kids have grandparents, and grandparents have money. Kids have aunts and uncles, and aunts and uncles have money. It was estimated, I think, in 2000. Better check. Yeah. It's estimated in 2000 that children under the age of 12 influence $500 billion worth of spending. That's in 2000. That's a long time ago. You just add zeros to that number. It's not because the kids can buy anything. It's not because they ha- their allowance money goes that far. It's because of what mom and dad can buy. And so we've got to see that generosity kind of positions us under the Lord, like a child, under the parents, uh, uh, with wealthy parents or with wealthy grandparents, and the Lord intends to repay. And so that verse doesn't mean that you give generously and, and you can expect a raise at your job this week. It doesn't mean that you give generously to someone and two days later someone's going to give more generously to you. That's not how you read Proverbs. That's not how you read Psalms. This is wisdom literature. I don't know about you, but I really like the posture of the Lord looking at me and saying, Nathan, I'm going to move you into the family bank account. Yes, please, I want to be on that account. Generosity leads to blessing. Generosity also uh, leads to generous returns. The more generous we are, the more generous the spiritual returns for his kingdom. 2 Corinthians 9 is a fantastic passage that speaks to generosity. We're going to read a couple verses from chapter 9 because there's so much there, probably too much. But uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says, generous investing leads to generous returns. Let me read Second uh, Corinthians nine six it says the point is this: whoever sows or plants or invests sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows, put in there, invests, gives bountifully will also reap bountifully. We read often in Scripture about storing up treasures in heaven. It seems that it's not uncommon uh, in the Christian community that we treat storing up treasures in heaven like culture at large treats saving for retirement. Retirement for many is out of sight, out of mind. We'll deal with it when we get there. Text says if you want to reap a significant spiritual reward. If you want to see the kingdom of God advance, invest generously. So generously. Do you have a plan for how you're investing for eternity? Do you have a plan for how to invest generously in God's work in this church, in this community, globally? This is not a uh, Roseburg Alliance Church only thing. This is each of us faithful followers of Christ taking everything that we have and saying, God, what do you want me to do with this? How do you want me to use what I have now for eternity? How do you want me to use what I have now to bless the world, to show your love? How do you want me to use it? 
not what's the minimum I should be giving so I can check a box. Lord, how can I give more? What could I do without to give more? It's going to be sacrificial. It's going to hurt a little bit because every time we give generously, it rubs on our desire to do things that might make us look good, to buy things that might communicate to others that we're successful, that we've planned well, that we've done well in business. Every time we give generously, it rubs against our flesh and our desire to make much of ourselves. Second Corinthians 9.7 adds to that and says, God loves cheerful giving, not compulsory giving, not forced giving, not we talked about it on Sunday, so I'll do something giving. Verse 7 says this, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So some of you hear that verse and you think, all right, I'll smile and then give something. And and so I would submit to you that if, if that's your posture, just hold on to it. Right? God has enough. What he needs to do here at this church, globally, with our 700 international workers in Douglas County, in Oregon, in the United States, beyond, he's got enough for those things. We have an opportunity to participate. We have an opportunity to be transformed when we say, Lord, take these resources that I have that I really want to use to go buy a new car and use them for your kingdom. There is something that will change in your heart when you do that because you've said this thing that I thought I wanted is not as important as I used to think. God's work, his glory, him being clearly seen in culture, him being clearly seen in my life, him being clearly seen in my family through this act of generosity is more important to me That act will change you. It'll change others around you. It will change you, and it will change others around you. Verse 10 of the same chapter says, He who supplies the seed to the sower will supply everything you need for the harvest. That's verse 10 of chapter 9. Uh, When we're generous, it reveals that we trust God Uh, for our future needs because many of us hoard what we have not trusting him for our future needs and if we can save up enough money for anything that might go wrong with our home anything that might go wrong with the car any potential medical bill then i can rest easy when we trust god for tomorrow we'll discover we can hold much more loosely to the things that we have today if you can't hold loosely to the things that you have today i would suggest there's a good chance In your heart, uh, there is an honest conversation happening and you may discover that you don't, in fact, trust him for your tomorrow. Verses 11 through 13 of chapter 9, the last part of the text that I'll read today, uh, speak a little bit more to generosity and its purpose and its cause. Verse 11 says, You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Which, through us, will produce thanksgiving to God for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. 
by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. There's a conversation from 2 Corinthians 9 that asks us, do we care enough about other people to put their needs before our own? Has the gospel changed our hearts such that we value where people will spend eternity enough to do without comforts in this life if those resources can be useful for pointing them to Christ in some way? Do we care enough about those people to sacrifice what we have in order that they might see Jesus? To talk about money is to not talk about dollar amounts. It's to not talk about how much goes to a church and how much goes to something that's not a church. And what if I got friends that are missionaries? I kind of like to give to them. And what about the Roseburg Rescue Mission and Safe Haven? I like to do those things. It's not about slicing up the pie in any particular direction. It's about taking all of our lives before the Father and just saying, Lord, use all of me, including everything that I have, and help me to see the things that I have and recognize the opportunity for them to be resources where maybe I didn't see it previously. Help me to look at my decision-making differently. Home buying, car buying, budgeting, spending, saving. Help me to even understand my own heart, why I'm doing the things that I'm doing, why the pattern of managing my finances and my time and the other resources that I have is the way that it is. Lord, show me my heart because I want to be someone, according to verse uh, 12, that has been transformed by the gospel. It says it comes from the confession of the gospel of Christ. If you're a person who understands and feels the generosity of your Father towards you, it compels us to go and do likewise. You've heard about a number of ministry things happening here in town. You've heard about Youth for Christ last week, two weeks ago, Safe Haven and Young Lives, three weeks ago, Winchester Elementary. The invite is to consider maybe being involved with one of those things. The invite is to consider starting something yourself. The invite is to have eyes more spiritually tuned, ears more spiritually tuned to what God is doing throughout your day. And these are just examples of how people are going about that. But it might look totally different for you. The ask today as we talk about generosity, as we see the generosity of our Savior towards an unworthy Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus's generous response to the generosity of his Savior is to simply lay our lives bare before the Lord and say, Lord, show me my heart. Show me how I'm using what you've given to me. Show me where to use it for your purposes. That everything we have, our time, it's not just money, our time, our resources, our skills, our knowledge, our experiences, our business backgrounds, You heard Dane last week talk about the different ways whatever you're interested in can be a mentoring opportunity. This is just a carryover from that conversation to say whatever God has given you, ask him how it can be used for his purposes. As we encounter the generosity of our Father, it compels us to be generous to others. 
We're going to end this morning's service. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. And by the way, where's Brian? We can't hear any more of this bottom of the barrel stuff. We're going to invite the worship team back up. We're going to receive this morning's offering. There are envelopes in there that go towards Great Commission Fund and the RAM Fund. Great Commission Fund is the global work of the Christian Missionary Alliance to support 700 workers in 70 countries. The RAM Fund, more information on the back of your bulletin, is Roseburg Alliance Missions. It goes to missions projects here in town and with our international partners that are initiated by this church. So that's what that's all about. This is kind of a once a year thing uh, that we do to remind ourselves of what's going on globally and what's going on here in town. But as we think about generosity, the big idea here is the art of neighboring, building bridges, using everything the Lord has given to us to that end. Let's pray.